Let's ask God to help us now uh, with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that you have provided this so that we can know Jesus and we can know what it means to follow him. And we pray now uh, through the teaching of your word and through the work of your spirit in our hearts, we will grow in our trust in our Lord Jesus and in our understanding of your goodwill for us as his followers. Help me to speak your word faithfully and truthfully and help us to receive it as it deserves to be received, as the word of the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, One of the great encouragements uh, of reading the gospel is seeing Jesus' patience with his followers. Uh, By the time of the conversation between Jesus and the disciples that you heard this morning from Matthew 16, the disciples have been with Jesus for a while. So they've witnessed healings, they've seen Jesus' power over nature and evil spirits, they've witnessed his confrontations with the religious authorities and most recently they've seen him feeding 4,000 men plus women and children with seven loaves and a few small fish. And they've heard his teaching about righteousness, about the kingdom about, and again most recently about the source of sin, our rebellion against God being in our hearts. But as you heard this morning, they still don't quite get it. They're not on Jesus' wavelength. They hear him say, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and their discussion, verse 7, focuses on bread. It's a response that shows that actually they're pretty clueless and in danger of drawing the wrong conclusion from Jesus' comment of, thinking that Jesus is calling on them to practice segregation in their shopping. And Jesus is clearly a little exasperated by their obtuseness, their failure to understand. You of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that you do not have bread? Don't you understand yet? He's exasperated, but Jesus doesn't give up on them. He keeps teaching them, nurturing their faith, as we see here, by reasoned rebuke and repeated warning. He keeps helping them to grow, to mature as his followers. In fact, as we see at the end of the gospel, and this is so wonderful, he doesn't even give up on them when they all abandon him when he's arrested. He is patient. Now, as someone who has found over the years that I can also at times be very slow to understand, slow to change my thinking and acting, to be in tune with our Saviour's life and teaching, I am encouraged, and I hope you are too, by our Saviour's patience with his disciples and grateful to have been shown the same patience throughout my life. And I'm also grateful that in his patient teaching of his first followers he's also teaching us in his maturing their understanding he is maturing ours and that's what's happening here in Matthew 16 in the rebuke of verse 8 and the warning of verses 6 and 11 Jesus gives them that Jesus gives here so that they can keep growing as his followers we have our Lord's instruction that will help us keep growing And I hope that's your expectation as a follower of Jesus, that you will keep growing in understanding, in faith, 
in fruitful obedience, growing to maturity. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you ought to tune in with me to this passage, for Jesus is teaching us how to keep growing as his followers. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, you actually might find Jesus addressing here some of the attitudes that are holding you back from committing to him, especially in what he says of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, as you heard... Uh, It's a new clicker. Uh, As you heard, uh, Jesus has just been challenged by the Pharisees and Sadducees, the two main religious parties of the day, for a sign. And and you could think of the Pharisees as, you know, uh, biblical legalists, uh, people who believe their diligent conformity to Old Testament law, a conformity that was ensured by keeping their traditions, would earn God's favour and cause him to send his Messiah to rescue them. And the Sadducees you could think of as kind of rationalist conservatives, the party of the wealthy elite. And they are natural enemies, actually, opposed to each other on many things. But we see that they're united in their concern about and opposition to Jesus and his teaching. And so they test him by asking him for a sign. Show them a sign, they say, from heaven. And it's after that they've they've left that confrontation behind them that Jesus says to his followers, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. (coughs) Now the disciples, conscious that they've forgotten bread and probably starting to feel hungry because, let's face it, they've just either sailed or rowed across the Sea of Galilee, uh, they've got bread on their minds. We didn't bring any bread. And so they seem to think that Jesus is giving them shopping advice, perhaps telling them that because of the mutual animosity animosity between the religious parties and Jesus, they shouldn't get bread from those aligned with the parties of the Pharisees and Sadducees, that Jesus is encouraging segregation, a, a kind of boycott like the kind religious Jews practised with the Gentiles. But this discussion, as I've said, just shows to Jesus their complete failure to understand, a failure to understand that has its origin, he says, in their little faith. You of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves that you have no bread? So they have a preoccupation with their material needs that distorts their understanding of Jesus' teaching, a preoccupation that stems from their little faith because how could they think that when they were with Jesus, were serving Jesus, provision of bread would ever be an issue? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you collected or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many large baskets you collected? Why is it you don't understand that when I told you beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it wasn't about bread. I mean, Jesus has demonstrated not once but twice that he had the power to meet all their material needs, especially for bread, the power of the creator God to multiply the provision of his creation to sustain them. How could they think that he would be concerned about a lack of bread? More He had already taught them that where his followers sought his kingdom and his righteousness, God would provide all they needed. Back in chapter 6, again, referring to their little faith, Jesus had said, so 
Don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Their preoccupation with their immediate material needs with bread meant they misunderstood entirely what Jesus was getting at. He was talking about, warning about, the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, not about whether or not they might buy bread from them. And Jesus says this preoccupation that distorted their thinking, that frustrated their engagement with Jesus' teaching, has its origin in their little faith, in in the inadequacy of their trust in Jesus and his power, in this case, to provide for his followers engaged in serving him. And so their little faith meant that they still had a back-to-front discipleship. Jesus had taught them to be be concerned first up front with his kingdom and righteousness, with seeking to live by Jesus' rule and teaching and trust God to provide. But they were starting at the back, worrying about food and how theirs would be provided. And that preoccupation showed also that they were still thinking of an outside-in obedience, not an inside-out one. You see, they were still thinking that somehow who they might buy bread from and the food that they would then eat could affect their belonging to Jesus' people, could perhaps defile them. Yet Jesus was talking about the attitude of their hearts what was going on inside, having already taught them back in chapter 15, that is what comes from inside that defiles us. Now we should listen to Jesus' rebuke and ask ourselves, is my problem in understanding what Jesus is teaching, in getting on to Jesus' wavelength, to know what he is calling me to do in his word, in growing as his disciple, is my problem because of my preoccupation with the material needs of this present life, with food and clothes, jobs and housing, a preoccupation that comes from little faith, from an anxiousness about those things that has its roots in not trusting the Lord Jesus, trusting his capacity to know and provide for all I need where I give myself to do his will as he has promised. So does my little faith, a little faith that means my mind is full of this world's concerns and my immediate needs, mean I am missing what Jesus is saying? And does it mean I'm always wanting Jesus to be talking about my preoccupations? You know, how I can have a happier, more secure, more materially prosperous life in this world and so fail to hear what he's actually saying? Now, I know they're pretty general questions. But that preoccupation with our worldly needs and wants that comes from little faith is like cataracts in the lenses of our eyes. A cataract doesn't just distort our perception of this object, of that object, you know, blur cars, but not trees. All the light coming into our eyes goes through our lenses and so a cataract distorts clouds, everything we look at in every situation, cars, trees, people's faces. So that preoccupation with our material needs affects our understanding of Jesus' will generally. 
And so, for example, it can affect our understanding of the love we're called to show, placing severe limits on it out of fear of not having enough for ourselves. When Jesus calls us to love us, he's loved us as greatly as any love can, laying down his life for us. So does our little faith stop us from really grasping what we are called to when we are called to love one another? Oh, and does it stop us from understanding what we are called to when we're called to go and make disciples of all nations? See, our little faith can make us think that's just for the keen. Can't be for me because I'm not financially secure yet. Does it stop us engaging uh, with what Jesus might want us to do when he says, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. And that's a saying of Jesus that takes some thinking about. Now, they're all just examples to consider. But we know that little faith can, as with the disciples here, blind us to the importance of being discerning about the teaching the ideas that you allow to enter your mind, your heart, the thinking, willing, feeling centre of our beings from which all our talking and acting flow, blinds us because it keeps us being preoccupied with the external and the material and giving less thought to the things that we're actually thinking and letting into our hearts. When Jesus said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He wasn't talking about who makes or where you buy your bread, which is why, and this is just an aside, but which is why, by the way, Christians are actually good for the unity of a multi-faith society. You see, we don't say, oh, you can only shop, only engage in commerce with people like us because others will make you unclean by what they sell you. You know, whether we can eat the food on sale isn't affected by whether they said Muslim prayers over the meat they slaughtered or have a little Buddha in the corner of the Thai takeaway. As I've said, Jesus has just said, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. So Jesus is not talking about where or from whom we can buy our food. But he is giving us a very serious warning about taking and ingesting the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, as verse 12 makes clear. Uh, New clickers. This, by the way, is representative of all my engagement with technology. I got it. Good. Okay. So uh, Jesus, uh, yeah, he's giving us this serious warning. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. It wasn't about bread. Then they understood that he had not told them to beware of the leaven in bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So Jesus likens their teaching to leaven. That is something that spreads to affect the whole, that can't be petitioned into a safe compartment, but though starting small will pervade everything. In this case, every part of our relationship with God. Now, what was the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus has in mind here, and why is it so dangerous? Well, the place to start in answering that question is the encounter at the beginning of this chapter that we heard read. 
they approached Jesus and tested him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, this is not the first time the Pharisees asked for a sign. They'd asked for a sign earlier, having just attributed Jesus casting out demons uh, to the power of Satan. Uh, they then went on, we read, to ask of him a sign. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And then as here, Jesus had pointed to Jonah as the only sign that will be given. And even an adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, what's wrong with their request for a sign? Or better, what's wrong with the attitude that demands a sign from heaven, that is, from God, before they'll believe? Well, firstly, recognise that they're asking for a sign despite all the signs that they've already seen. That's the point of Jesus' remarks in verses 2 to 4 about their weather knowledge. With the weather, they can draw and do draw correct conclusions from their observations. So why not with Jesus? Jesus has given them many signs, much to observe, that tells them what kind of time they are living in. It's the time when the king of God's kingdom is amongst them. Jesus had said back in chapter 12, if I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that's the obvious conclusion from what Jesus has been doing, that God's reign is present with Jesus because he is God's king. And since that encounter, Matthew records Jesus working many signs of the kingdom. Uh, back in chapter 14, before feeding the crowd, he'd healed the sick in the crowd and then he'd fed 5,000 men and unnumbered women and children from five loaves and two fishes before going on to Gennesaret where he healed just by letting people touch the hem of his garment. We heard about healing the Syrophoenician's daughter and just before feeding the 4,000, uh, we read that large crowds came to him, including the lame, the blind, the crippled, those unable to speak, and many others. They put them at his feet and he healed them. So the crowd was amazed when they saw those unable to speak talking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they gave glory to the God of Israel. Jesus' ministry wasn't conducted in the dark or undercover. It was out in the open with many witnesses to the power of his presence. So this demand for a sign is not a request from curiosity or uncertainty. It's a request from unbelief, from a refusal to see that seeks to support unbelief, support a refusal to acknowledge what is plain. And Jesus says he will not pander to unbelief. He repeats that the only sign is the sign of Jonah. And Jesus specified in chapter 12 what aspect of Jonah's story was meant. 
as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. That sign is something no one will witness, just as no one witnessed Jonah in the whale. All that brought Nineveh to repentance was the prophet's preaching, not witnessing a sign. And all that the generation of Jesus' hearers will receive is the report of a sign, the report of the resurrection after he'd been in the tomb three days and three nights, that is, Three days by the Jewish reckoning where a part of a day is counted as a whole day. The report of the resurrection in the apostles' preaching that Jesus is Lord. See, like the Ninevites, that generation and we hear the word, not see a sign. Jesus does not pander to unbelief. And he does not pander to unbelief because, secondly, what this request reveals is their determined pride, their determination to be the ones in control. See, they are demanding that for them to believe, God must prove himself to them on their terms, the kind of sign they specify when they demand it the signs that God's already given and given abundantly in the ministry of Jesus, they're saying, no, it's not enough for us. For Jesus to be the Christ, he must be the Christ of their expectations, a Christ who will reinforce, not challenge their views. The word he preaches is not enough. In the request, you see, for a sign, they are demanding to be dealt with on their terms. It's a demand that says, They and their judgments and protecting their interests and position is what's most important and must remain so. So there's no acknowledging God as God in this request, no recognition that the holy almighty creator God has to have the initiative in relating to us and that he can be related to on his terms alone. You see, they are demanding to dictate the terms of their believing. And even though asking for a sign may sound pious, look like they're giving Jesus a go, it actually makes genuine repentance and therefore a genuine relationship with God impossible. For believing will only happen on their terms, leave them calling the shots in their relationship with God. To believe on the basis of a sign they demand while rejecting all the signs given means that right at the core of their being there would be no humbling of themselves just self-congratulation for having their demand met. You see, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees is unbelief, determined unbelief in the face of the evidence, an unbelief that has its origin in and is designed to protect their sovereignty, their being the boss, staying in control, holding on to the lie Adam believed that they can be God's equals and therefore set the terms of their relationship with him. And that unbelief and determination to stay in control runs throughout their teaching and their actions. Now we've already seen it expressed in chapter 15 in their criticism of the lack of hand washing by Jesus' disciples. What did Jesus say to them in response You break God's command because of your tradition. You have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. You see, they put their word over the word of God, insisting that what they think God should be pleased with 
is actually more important than what God says he is pleased with honouring your parents. This priority given to their teaching over God's word is the natural consequence of thinking they are the ones who know best what God should say or do if he is to be really God, that they can dictate to God the terms of how God should be served, the terms of their belief. And when you think about it, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, what they teach and the attitude it embodies is not that uncommon, is it? It's not just first century religious groups that have a stubborn unbelief in the face of God revealing himself clearly, as he has in creation and then in the gospel of the incarnation, death and resurrection of Jesus, and yes, in the spread of the faith through the word as it's preached throughout the world. See, that's an unbelief that's motivated by wanting to stay in control, an unbelief that demands God proves himself to us, to them, on their terms. And that unbelief we can meet in religious or irreligious dress. For example, those who openly say, I'll only believe in God if he proves himself to me. I was door knocking once and the mocker said, if God is real, let, it, let him prove it to me by striking me with lightning now. One would have thought that's a fairly self-defeating test. <laughs> but that's what he said. And it goes from those mockers to the Dawkins who says, I'll only believe in God if he leaves unmistakable evidence of his presence that I can detect by my scientific investigations and I can't explain by any other means. And so, of course, he wants to relate to God as an object, the living God. Or, of course, there are those who say, I won't believe unless God answers my prayers in exactly the way I want. This is an unbelief that wants to dictate to God the terms on which he might be worshipped, the terms of his believing, that wants God to accommodate his expectations to our retaining control over our lives or at least some part of them. And again, that's common. Whether that's the demand that he accepts my desire for comfortable wealth and security or my sexual sin or my understanding of reality developed from my own particular experience, my sense of self that I can only express uh, where there's no restraint even by God on my self-expression or that accepts that if I work for God he owes me a good life and I have a right to be angry with him if he doesn't deliver. There's lots of dictating to God the terms in which people will believe him. The teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees that demands God proves himself to them on their terms and that they can dictate to God how he should be God is common. And Jesus warns us against it because it's destructive of any relationship with the living God. Ingesting this bread won't just give you indigestion, it will kill you. You see, think what the effect of the Pharisees and Sadducees' teaching would have been on the apostles at this time of Jesus' ministry. They would never have confessed him, as they're about to, as the Christ. They'd never accept him being the Lord he is who conquers through suffering and dying. I mean, they had enough trouble with that anyhow, but if you're determined you know better that you are the judge of how God is to work in the world, you never accept the cross. 
Oh, and they could never be disciples on Jesus' terms except his call for his followers to take up their cross and follow him because they have to stay in charge. Think of what happens to our relationship to God where their teaching, even in the smallest amount, takes takes root. Trusting dependence on your Lord is destroyed because you have to stay in charge. It has to meet your approval. Faithful obedience is destroyed. For the last word on what God can require of you is your own. Growing in knowledge of God is destroyed. Of course, God can't be anything other than you've already decided him to be. And you can never grow in knowledge of his will, for you won't hear what you don't already approve of. The teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees is really poisonous, affecting every part of a person's relationship with God, frustrating any possibility of a real relationship with the true and living God. We need to hear Jesus' warning on acting it and act on it, for their teaching is the spirit of our age. So how do we act on Jesus' warning? How do we resist the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the unbelief that says we can dictate to God the terms on which we trust and serve him? Well, remembering is the way to resist. Just as remembering is the way to grow in our little faith, remembering specifically the sign given to an unbelieving generation, the sign of Jonah. Remembering that the Lord who was three days and three nights in the earth is risen. You see, the Pharisees and Sadducees sought to prove their determined unbelief right, didn't they? To show that they're really in charge. To prove their teaching true by killing In the death of Jesus, the Son of God, the God who won't be God on their terms, who won't cede rule of the world, interpretation of reality to them. Just as those who are determined to show their unbelief right are still trying to kill God with their words, if not with nails. But on the third day, after those three Jewish days and nights in the ground, God raised Jesus from the dead raised in the body in which he died. And the resurrection's not an idea competing with other human ideas. It's an event, God acting as only God can. And to remember that is to know that our refusal to believe, our demand that God cater to our unbelief, our rejection of God's rule over us, does not stop the living God from being God, who will be who he chooses to be, not what we demand him to be, who will be related to only on his terms, never on ours. To remember that death and resurrection is to know that the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, that we call the shots, that we can relate to God in the terms we set, that we can dictate to God, is a lie a lie that kills like the devil's lie that we would be like God, God's equals. See, we are not in control. The pandemic's taught us that, hasn't it? We don't dictate to God. We can only receive what he gives, receive the relationship he invites us to, and that is good news. 
For God being God, not pandering to our proud unbelief, sending his Christ to do his will, to be the Lord and Christ he wills him to be and not what people wanted, a Christ who would die and be buried means we have a saviour, a patient saviour of those with little faith because he's died for all our sins, including the little faith that does not honour him with the trust he deserves, does not honour his love, which is greater than all, giving his life for us, does not honour his power to raise the dead, to defeat death, does not honour his faithfulness to his promises. Not a word will be broken. We have a patient saviour who can save us even in our unbelief and who wants us to grow in our faithful, fruitful following and provides us with his true and sure word so we can. So if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, consider what's holding you back. Is it a pride that wants to dictate to God the terms on which you'll believe, that wants to stay in control of your life even if just of a part of it? Recognise it and turn from it because it has no future but death. The Lord Jesus has given you in his death and rising abundant proof of both God's power and goodness and also that God won't accommodate to your dictates, to your understanding of who God should be. He will be the God he is. And as the God he is, he offers life, but only on his terms. But they are good terms, repentance and faith in Jesus, acknowledging the truth that you're not God and not in charge and confessing that the crucified and risen Jesus, the Son of God, is in charge with the authority to forgive you and to give you life, eternal life. And if you're a believer, hear Jesus' rebuke of our little faith that frustrates our understanding of his will by not trusting him for our needs and heed Jesus' warning and grow in faith and resist the lies that say we can dictate to God by remembering, remembering the gospel, remembering Jesus' love for us, which is real and without limit, remembering Jesus' might, He is the God who can do whatever he wills, remembering his death and rising, remembering that your patient saviour lives and reigns and remembering him then trusting him with all and for all as he deserves. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly father, help us to hear Jesus' rebuke of our little faith. Please stop our concerns about our material needs. Stop it from frustrating our understanding of and obedience to the will of our Lord Jesus. And our gracious Father, help us to heed his warning so that that pride that demands that you be the God we want you to be and not the God you are, that demands that you relate to us on our terms, that we'll only believe as we can shape you to our wants and needs. Our Father, please stop that pride from having 
any hold in our hearts and help us to humble ourselves and confess Jesus, crucified and risen, is Lord, the one who can keep us forever and give us life forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.